hundred years. <laughs> the meaning of uh, human existence comes down to what created the human species. It was brought about by uh, group formation uh, that involved a heavy emphasis for survival on social intelligence, communication, and um, cooperation. This uh, must be taken from the hands of theologians and philosophers and put into the hands of scientists. You started out um, with ants, sort yes. of famously, and here you are writing about the meaning of human existence. So how do you get from, from one thing to the other? I wrote a book called Sociobiology in 1975. It was quite controversial then because I suggested in the final chapter that human beings might have originated by the same principles uh, as uh, all the lower animals, like ants, and that led naturally to um, a fuller consideration of humans. You've pointed out that there is very little that we can learn, morally speaking, from ants. Nothing, not a, not a thing. In fact, you don't want to learn anything about uh, our, what our behavior should be. All ants are female. Males are produced in the colony for just one purpose and for a very brief period of time. Now, I'm a feminist for sure, but I think that's sort of pushing things. Older females are the ones that do battle to the enemies. So uh, that's a principle we don't want to follow. And some eat their injured. No, no ant military hospital. But anyway, with that behind so us. So we shouldn't do that? What? We shouldn't do that? No. Okay. Part of our problems as a, as a whole is that we are a species that is narcissistic. We're intensely social and intensely interested in other people. And that's how we keep our groups united and well coordinated. The result is um, that we are geniuses at social intelligence, but we're really stupid when it comes to understanding how to manage the environment. Mm -hmm. We are um, a badly adapted species right now. We have created civilizations in which we lead and live uh, parts of the planet on our own, and we haven't gotten over our emphasis is on forming groups and having groups compete with each other. Ooh, vanilla. Mmm, chocolate. Strawberry. <laughs> we love ice cream. <laughs> Get a scoop of that. Get a scoop of that. What? Ice cream. What? Ice cream. Get a scoop of that. Get a scoop of that. What? Ice cream. What? Ice cream. Hello, and welcome back to the 500years.org podcast. This is Jeff Till, and today is June 21st, 2016, or the first day of summer, Although, which is kind of ridiculous because in South Carolina, we've had summer since, like, March. 
I wanted to uh, take a minute and thank everyone for downloading last week's or two weeks ago podcast on militarism. It was one of the most popular episodes in my feed, getting three times as many listens as the usual podcast within the first week. So I'm not sure exactly what about that topic drew so many people. I would love to think that maybe we just got a bunch of new listeners and they will stick with us podcast after podcast. But if not, then I hope you enjoyed that one. And I hope that was the reason why it was popular. Today, I'm going to explore the ideas of collaboration and cooperation. I have a long ongoing conversation with one of my best friends, Chris, that's been going on for 20 years, where when I first found libertarian ideas, I quickly brought them to him thinking like, oh, he's going to love this. It's um, all about, you know, they're against war and they're against uh, drug prohibition and they're for freedom and they don't charge you taxes and they don't make you do stuff. And he, he, uh, being of a lefty persuasion, didn't care for a lot of the ideas. And even though over the years we probably have more stuff we agree upon than we disagree upon, uh, he still likes to go back to the idea that libertarianism is a both a, a has a predatory aspect to it of survival of the fittest and that some areas should rely on cooperation or collaboration to get done i.e they should be societal or social or government-led and so one of the notes from a long time ago was you know he wanted to see there's certain areas of life say maybe healthcare or taking care of the poor that should be collaborative instead of competitive so it was government is uh, is collaboration or cooperation, and then the libertarian ideas are competition. In a more recent note, um, he writes, I just ordered you a book, The Meaning of Human Existence by E.O. Wilson from Amazon. I mentioned it during our visit. So he had, he had recently visited, and we had spent six nights probably having a happy, fun debate and drinking beers from usually from 8 o'clock at night till sometimes as late as 3 in the morning. Um, so that was, uh, and then we spent several other days together as well, uh, so much that we got in trouble from our wives because we were isolating ourselves too much. Uh, I don't think you'll hate it as much as the Patel book. I went back to his note. You'll probably receive it next week. I think it is worth checking out, though. I found it to be subtle and had to read it twice. The key thing that might be useful for your thinking about freedom slash anarchy as opposed to slavery slash socialism is that the argument is made pretty persuasively in my mind that part of the human condition is a dynamic tension between these two extremes derived from evolution. Quickly, hyper-altruism, as described by Ayn Rand in a reading of her In Your Duty Obligation podcast, actually describes the way societies of ants and bees work. So... And this is a big theme in the Meaning of Human Existence book. Edward O. Wilson is a biologist who has studied complex insect uh, communities, such as termites and ants and bees, who have job specialization within their, within their mix. Some people are fighters, some people are food gatherers, others take care of babies, others reproduce, etc. Uh, but they live for the survival. It's group, it's group survival group evolution, they, they live for the survival of the, the entire community, the entire society, if you want to, and don't have the individualistic attributes that other animals might have, or 
even you know to a lesser degree so even though maybe wolves or lions are in a pack or pride they are still relatively small and not very specialized and are still their evolution and their survival is based on their own individual survivals so again uh Quickly, hyperaltruism, as described by Ayn Rand, accurately describes the way societies of ants and bees work. Okay, now, hyperanarchy probably describes the way bears and sharks live. So that was that was sort of the, the finding. And we had spent a long time, and I had taken Chris through the arguments that all government action is founded on violence, and that... From, from every law to every tax being paid to literally every stop sign that you obey is reinforced with the idea that there's a group of people who have a monopoly of force over you. And even though that force isn't enacted when you're compliant, that doesn't eliminate the violence from the situation. Chris either didn't, didn't like that argument or didn't agree with that argument for the most part, and we spent a long time on this. But anyway, just to repeat that last sentence hyperanarchy probably describes the way bears or sharks live, which I'm taking that to mean that they're, they're both solo individualistic things that prey upon animals that are weaker than them, and their existence is, again, predatory, individualistic, and we could also imply from that non-collaborative and non-cooperative. Neither accurately, I'm, I'm putting, uh, hopefully I'm not putting words in his mouth because he is a dear friend and he is going to listen to this. He listens to the podcast and has said that he enjoys them very much. So maybe I could even bring him on as a guest and we could uh, have a two-way conversation instead of this one-way conversation I'm doing here. So neither accurately describes human beings. So neither the hyper-altruism and socialism of ants and bees nor the the rugged predatory individualism of bears and sharks. Neither accurately describes human beings, which are somewhere in the middle. So the state of nature has to mean the state of human nature to really make sense and be a good starting point for arguments in thinking about the flourishing of human beings. So that's interesting. So it's what I, I, I think the conclusion he's making is that something absolutely socialistic or communistic like as bees and ants live is is not workable but the hyper anarchy which i think he he in my in my view he misrepresents as bears and sharks uh are, are neither are accurate so it must be somewhere in the middle so we could imp- take from that that maybe he means uh partially socialistic partly partly individualistic and if we take it from the last note that includes collaboration and cooperation. And I, I actually think that's true. The thing that I get confused about or I wanted to explore is whether that sense of collaboration and cooperation between people is resident or is reflected by the institution of government, which is sort of a make-and-take institution which feeds itself by by stealing money and does everything in its its power backed by violence. And in my view, collaboration and cooperation usually aren't violent transactions, but are mutual voluntary transactions of people working together, usually for a mutual beneficial, you know, mutually beneficial outcome. The government, in my view, in many of its dealings, maybe not all of them, 
but certainly in the ones that Chris and I agree with, such as war and prisons and the monetary system and, and its relationship with the financial industry, the uh, relationship with the military-industrial complex, et cetera, et cetera, is very much a zero-sum, uh, non-desirable, where the outcome isn't beneficial for everyone involved, the people whose money is being taken via taxes versus the people who are getting the money via the, the subsidies or the program or the people who are receiving on the receiving side of the soldier's gun and are receiving the bullet, that we're looking at a lot of non-mutual you know, mutual outcomes and that it might not be collaboration. But in, in our freedom, our free lives, like as we interact with our families and with our, our spouses and with our friends and with our coworkers and with the places we shop and with our neighbors, there might be all sorts of collaboration that happens that has nothing to do with the existence of government. So ending the note, um, that's that's basically the, the essence of this last note. And I did read this book. So in this podcast, I want to explore the ideas of collaboration and whether, whether libertarian thoughts support collaboration and cooperation more so than statist or government-led thoughts, whether government actually is a reflection or an embodiment of collaboration, or whether it's not collaboration, but actually coercion. And then I want to do a little book report of the meaning of human existence. I really enjoyed it. There's not really a political or government mention in the entire book. It's more of a biology book and a little bit of a philosophy uh, exploration as it reflects upon science and animals and biology and even the universe. And then I also wanted to talk a little bit about ice cream. Ice cream! What? Ice cream! So all I did for the Militarism podcast is mostly read articles off Wikipedia, which let me have probably better ideas than if I were to make them up on my own. And I guess people still found it entertaining. So I decided maybe I'll just read articles off the internet for this podcast as well. And let, you know, take credit for other people's brilliance. This first article is from the Mises Institute, from Mises.org, written by Jeffrey Tucker, a thinker that I really like. He's on the board member of Isaac Morehouse's Praxis business, and he's also the, used to be the chief liberty officer of Liberty me, liberty.me, and uh, he's part of Fee, and he used to apprentice under Murray Rothbard. I'm sure if you're listening to this, you know who Jeffrey is. Anyway, this was written on March 15th, 2011, and it's called There's No Such Thing as Homemade Ice Cream. In the freezer section of the grocery store, there's vanilla bean, French vanilla, and yet another flavor called homemade vanilla. Now, come on. I'm in the store here, looking at rows and rows of commercial products produced by a vast capitalistic machinery, a cornucopia of frozen goods made by advanced industrial technologies, made from goods and services that require a global division of labor and a sophisticated trading and price system rooted in private property and replete with entrepreneurial risk and at every stage of production. There's nothing, quote, homemade about anything here, and surely everyone knows that. It's just marketing. Not that there's anything wrong with that. But it got me thinking, what is real homemade ice cream? Oh, I've made it before, and it always struck me that you can't really make real homemade ice cream. 
with an electric machine. Electricity is so artificial. And if you're going to plug in a machine, in what sense are you actually making this stuff? Pouring ingredients into an electric bucket that's and waiting isn't really making anything. You might as well let someone else do that and buy it from them. You might as well make a trip to the freezer section of the grocery store. Nope, homemade must be hand cranked all the way, so the elbow muscle does the hard work, and it can be exhausting. You turn and turn and crank and crank, and it seems like it will never become thick like ice cream. Then, when it finally happens, you are tired out, the turning gets harder and harder until you have to throw your whole body into it, and finally you just can't turn it anymore. At that point, it's ready to eat. Is it worth it? That's a subjective judgment. But consider, how many of the ingredients themselves are homemade? Is the stuff that makes the ice cream really homemade and truly authentic? We've already dispensed with the need for an electrical plant in your backyard by settling on the hand-cranked method. This is a great step towards homemade. But what about the rock salt? a product that seems useful for either breaking up ice on the sidewalk or for making ice cream, but not much else. I bought my packet at the store. This is clearly a compromise for the seemingly the seeming need for autarky and ice cream production. So what if we made this ourselves? And then it goes on for description of how to mine for sprock salt. All I can say is yikes, I've got some traveling to do and some crews to hire and then I have a problem of packaging the stuff and shipping it back from Islamabad or Winsford or wherever. But wait, it seems like Morton sells a product that might just that might be the same thing, but in any case, markets itself as ice cream salt, as distinguished from just plain rock salt for driveways and the like. What the difference is, I don't know. But I'm not taking any chances chances, so more research on the point is clearly necessary. Then there's the problem of milk. I could buy a cow but that's a lot of upkeep. I understand that you have to milk one of these things regularly, whether you're making ice cream or not. And there's the problem of feed and waste and many other issues. Raising and keeping this animal healthy might turn into a full-time job with no time left over for making, much less enjoying ice cream. Of course, you need refrigeration and ice, without which matters are rather hopeless. It took most of all recorded human history to invent the refrigerator, which only became common in American homes in 1920s and 1930s. And so it is pretty presumptuous for me to assume that I could construct one of my own. Plus, these things run on electricity, and I thought I had dispensed with that in the name of authentic authenticity. So as long as I'm using electricity to store the milk and ice, why not just let electricity turn the crank too, okay? I'm back to plan A, get a generator. I'll pretend not to notice the problem of making homemade gasoline to power it. After all, I could use a river, need to get one of those, or erect a giant windmill, uh, prepare for dead bird carcasses to litter up the yard. But then there's no power on windless days. How about a solar-based generator? Break out the Windex. This is getting expensive. Of course you need eggs, which means chickens, which I wouldn't entirely rule out, but everyone I know who has tried to raise chickens for eggs eventually throws in the towel. It's a disgusting job fully of unexpected headaches, like getting rid of varmints and keeping the chickens warm and buying expensive feeds and dealing with filthy critters and chicken coops. It is doable, provided I want to quit my job in order to raise, cow, raise a cow and chickens. But there's still a problem of sugar and flavor. Sugar can be had in many ways. It can, I could raise bees or sugarcane or extract it from fruit and many other processes, each rather daunting. It would be far easier to just buy some, 
But then what about authenticity and the important homemade aspect of my ice cream? Now let's talk about vanilla. Apparently this derives from a bean grown in Mexico and Madagascar, and says Wikipedia, extensive labor required to grow the vanilla seed pods. Now I seem to have bumped up against an impossible problem. I live in neither place, and apparently my climate just can't do the vanilla growing thing. Maybe I need a greenhouse. Artificial vanilla would require a chemistry lab outback. I've said nothing about the ice cream maker itself, which uses stainless steel gears and a crank. In the whole history of humanity, steel as we know it has only become economically viable in the 19th century, and stainless steel is a very much a modern invention. It would require vast study for me to even figure out the metallurgical aspects of this. And at the least, I would need a blast furnace out back, and one wonders how the cow, the chickens, the electrical plant, and vanilla-producing greenhouse would fare admits that. Once I have the steel, I would need to form it. Then there's the problem of the wood for the maker, too. So I would need to cultivate trees and mill them and somehow shape them into round slats. Already, it would appear that I need a backyard full of stuff from all nations and all times, not to mention the physical impossibility of maintaining all of the contraptions without a vast labor force that includes engineers from many fields and experts in a huge range of tasks. Bankruptcy would begin even before this operation began. The division of labor global and involving thousands and even millions of people, is looking ever better, all beautifully coordinated by the price system and given forward motion by entrepreneurs at every stage, operating in coordination from all parts of the world. In fact, it's pretty clear that there's no such thing as homemade ice cream, and that we just use the phrase only in the most metaphorical sense. Thank goodness. In this case, I'm seeing the point. The store is just the last stop stop in a huge and extended process that emerged over centuries and requires the involvement of people all over the world. They can call their vanilla ice cream homemade if they want to. Given what they, they go through to get us good food at good prices, capitalists have more than earned the right to stretch the language a bit when trying to persuade us to buy their products. We are the beneficiaries of a remarkable system of human cooperation. Ice cream! So Jeffrey's article is really probably a an elaborate send-off or tribute or homage to Leonard Reed's famous article, I, Pencil, where Leonard takes us through the manufacturing process of a pencil and shows us that no single person has neither the knowledge nor the capital required to make something as simple as a pencil. To give you the story in short form, the two grow and mill the wood to cut it into the small cylinder would all be massively capital intensive. The ability to find the ingredients to create yellow paint and black paint and varnish that goes on the outside, the ability to mine and refine graphite or lead in the middle and then manage to stick a small rod of it into the middle of a piece of wood, the ability to mine the metal and to shape it into that little round tube that holds the eraser, the ability to create and rubber from its whatever its source, whether it's petroleum or plant or whatever. And that something as simple as a pencil, never mind you an Apple computer or a, a cruise ship or an automobile, all takes tremendous amounts of collaboration and cooperation. And these are all the 
some of the favorite principles of the libertarian philosophy is to show how massive, massive scaled collaboration over time and over huge communities can produce some of the most, you know, beautiful and most valuable stuff. Everything from the food that keeps us alive to the, the, the Tyvek that keeps the rain out of our houses to the, the blankets that we use to snuggle with our children to the entertainment we watch uh, to even the medicine that cures our sickness or, or keeps us healthy. The, the fact is, is that market collaboration probably on a scale of magnitude, maybe a hundred times more than government itself, is a force of collaboration and cooperation. And all of that is completely achieved without any kind of violent apparatus, without the use of guns or the threat of force, or with using political capital, i.e. tax money. This is a complete tangent, and I shouldn't even go here. But in Tucker's article, he talks about how we need refrigeration and to make Mike ice cream possible. And I was like, oh, yeah. So ice cream probably didn't exist before, uh, you know, before the last century when maybe at least an ice box would have been necessary. And that would have probably been the late 1800s where that would have been feasible to ship ice around. But on Wikipedia, I looked up ice cream and just um, this has nothing to do with with collaboration or libertarianism or anything. Uh, ancient Greece during the 5th century BC, ancient Greeks ate snow mixed with honey and fruit in the markets of Athens. So they had some kind of ice cream as far back as 500 BC. In China, a frozen mixture of milk and rice was used in China around 200 BC. They poured a mixture of snow and saltpeter over the exteriors of containers filled with syrup, for in the same way as salt rises the boiling point of water, it lowers the freezing point to below zero. Persia and Rome in 400 BC, the Persians invented a special chilled food made of rose water and vermicelli, mm, delish, which was served to royalty during summers. The iced was mixed with saffron fruits and various other flavors. The Roman Emperor Nero, 37 to 68 AD, had bought ice from the mountains and combined it with fruit toppings to create chilled delicacies. Asia in the 16th century, the Mughal emperors used relays of horsemen to bring ice from the Hindu Kosh to Delhi, where it was used in fruit sorbets. In Europe, when Italian duchess Catherine de Medici, Medici married the Duke of Orleans, Henry II of France, in 1533, she is said to have brought with her to France some Italian chefs who had recipes for flavored ices or sorbets. 100 years later, Charles I of England was reported so impressed by the frozen snow that he offered his own ice cream maker a lifetime pension in return for keeping the formula secret so that ice cream could be a royal prerogative. There is no historical evidence to support these legends, which first appeared during the 19th century. The first recipe in French for flavored ices appears in 1674 in Nicholas Lemery's, I can't read it, uh, Recul de Curiosity Res et Novelle de Plus Admirables Effects de la Nature. I, I butchered that, sorry. I have no sense for French whatsoever. Recipes for Sorbetti saw publication in 1694. Uh, it first appeared, ice cream first appeared in England in the 18th century. The recipe for ice cream was published in Mrs. Mary Eel's Receipts in London in 1718. In North America, 
an early reference to ice cream given by the Oxford English Dictionary is from 1744, reprinted in a magazine in 1877. Quote, 1744 in Pennsylvania Mag, History and Biography, uh, among the rarities was some fine ice cream, which with the strawberries and milk eat most deliciously. So... Ice cream was introduced to the United States by Quaker colonists who brought their ice cream recipes with them. Confectioners sold ice cream at their shops in New York and other cities during the colonial area. Ben Franklin, George Washington, and Thomas Jefferson, famous people from the government, were known to have regularly eaten and served ice cream. First Lady Dolly Madison, wife of U.S. President James Madison, served ice cream at her husband's inaugural ball in 1813. So there's a little bit of history of ice cream. There was a lot of ice cream before there was ever mechanical refrigeration. Sorry, Jeff. If we look around us, um, you know, much of what surrounds us kind of started life as various rocks and sludge buried in the ground in various places in the world. Um, but of course, they don't look like rocks and sludge now. They look like, you know, TV cameras, monitors, you know, annoying radio mics. And so this kind of magical transformation is what I was trying to get at with my uh, project, which became known as the Toaster Project. And it was also inspired by this quote from um, Douglas Adams. And the situation is from The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And the situation it describes is the hero of the book, he's a 20th century man, finds himself alone on a strange planet, populated only by a technologically primitive people. And he kind of assumes that, yes, he'll become the kind of the, these villagers, he'll become their emperor with his, you know, and transform their society with his wonderful command of technology and science and the elements. But of course, realizes that without the rest of human society, uh, he can <clears throat> barely make a sandwich, let alone a toaster. Uh, but he didn't have Wikipedia, so I thought, okay, I'll try and make an electric toaster from scratch. And working on the, uh, the idea that the cheapest electric toaster would also be the simplest reverse engineer, I went and bought the cheapest toaster I could find, took it home, and was kind of dismayed to discover <laughs> that inside this object, which I'd bought for just £3.94, there were 400 different bits made out of you know, 100 plus different materials. I didn't have the rest of my life to, uh, to do this project. I had, you know, maybe nine months. So I thought, okay, I'll start with five. And these were steel, mica, plastic, copper, and nickel. So this is from a TED Talk, Thomas Thwaites, How I Built a Toaster from Scratch. As you heard, he attempted to reverse engineer a, the cheapest toaster he could find and he was going to go through all the processes. He found that there was hundreds of parts and dozens of dozens of materials. And he takes nine months, and he builds the most pathetic piece of shit toaster you've ever seen. Anyway, if you want to go watch this, this is on YouTube. Uh, just type in Ted, make a toaster, you'll find it. It's a pretty entertaining video. And again, just shows the point that there's a tremendous amount of collaboration and cooperation with this crazy libertarian idea of markets and commerce. Hardly the idea of the individual shark or bear, and certainly more collaboration than competition, even though competition is an element in this space. Ice cream! What? Ice cream! I've looked up the definition of cooperation, 
And cooperation, I think we, we all know what cooperation is, but it's the process of working together to the same end. The definition of collaborate is to work jointly on an activity, especially to produce or create something. So in at least in how I understand these terms, or how I like to use them, maybe that doesn't count. Maybe you don't get to pick how you like to use words because they are objectively external from my own brain. That collaboration and cooperation are people working together to an end. And I'm going to presume that this is in without one party requiring the use of force or coercion on the others. So while something we might see something like making love as being a co cooperative or collaborative experience, if we put violence into it, it instantly turns into rape. Now, obedience does not eliminate the violence from the equation. So if the the would-be lovemaker is keeping his gun in another room and is saying, woman, you're going to sleep with me, or I'm going to get my gun from another room and shoot the children, the woman may comply and be obedient, but that doesn't erase the threat of violence. And that's essentially the same way that government works. So that even if, and this was, because I, th I think uh, Chris is going to agree with me with all the market stuff that we just went through, the um, this part of that, compl that compliance or obedience to something that overholds violence uh, does not make collaboration or voluntary cooperation. So just let's try that on for size. And you can tell because things that we wanted to collaborate with, things that we wanted to, we, we do on our own without being forced. So for example, nobody forces us to eat ice cream and yet we still do it. Yet at the same time, when it's time to roll up the war wagons or to contribute to a, a government uh, relief program, we're not sort of compelled to do it voluntarily. We are compelled to do it because we, we know that we have to. It's the law, and the law is backed by force. That's the same way if you're an authoritarian parent. You very rarely have to make your kid eat their ice cream, but you do have to make them eat their broccoli. I don't necessarily do that because I'm not an authoritarian parent, but you get the point. So I want to I want to put out the the idea that maybe government is the failure of collaboration because it only insists that we act in ways that we don't want to, and that it's usually zero sum, meaning that we're not both working together towards the same goal, but often towards opposite goals, or the the consumer citizen the citizen here is often getting a lesser result than had they not participated before. Supposedly, the government is obedient to the people because of things like democracy and voting, and perhaps to some degree the Constitution. This, of course, doesn't have... This idea was, is only about 250 years old, coming out of the Enlightenment. There was 6,000 years of precedent before then where government was forced upon the people, either through the uh, the God King, the, the Pope, the priest, the king, the ruler, and everything else. And then this sort of mythology of turning government over to the people happened about 250 years ago with the Enlightenment thinkers. And democracy itself, maybe you could say it was collaboration between the people that you agreed with, but in the end, it's really, it's a way of managing disagreement. It's a zero-sum game where instead of finding natural collaboration, it's like a preemptive workaround 
to when the disagreement happens and then half the you know some some plurality of people win and some minority of people lose so it's really democracy itself is a non-collaborative process it's a system to work around collaboration and you know i think it's also a way to hoodwink people into sort of thinking that they're collaborating and thinking they have power now the interesting thing is we don't even really vote for things we don't vote for issues or for policies or anything we tend to only vote for people who supposedly represent some kind of bundle of interest that uh, we have and this this population of people seems to be very small and very controlled and there's never the option to vote for voluntary collaboration it's usually just especially like in the presidential race the choice between two different people and as we're seeing now in 2016 that there's great dissatisfaction with even the two choices people are going to get everyone's very clear that neither of the candidates are going to represent the specific bundle of issues that they they particularly have and there's no way that a person could so um, to even think that this is somehow a collaborative effort to help us or that we are going to work together towards a common out outcome is is fairly ridiculous more on how democracy as collaboration is a silly thought i'm going to uh, rebroadcast some stuff from isaac morehouse's january 25th 2013 article why government fails public choice for everyone and here he lays out i'm going to butcher this i'm sorry isaac um three arguments for why voting uh, can be so perfectly unsuited for giving people what they want. So I'm going to read little uh, bits of the article and democracy as a restraint. Does democracy ensure that the political class will pursue the interests of the public rather than their own? The answer is a resounding no. The reason is because voters are also self-interested. It is well known that statistically an individual vote in a state or national election is meaningless. The odds of one vote changing the outcome of a national election are worse than the odds of winning the lottery. The odds of getting in a car accident on the way to the polls are greater than the odds of an individual vote making a difference. In other words, the possibility of an individual vote resulting in measurable benefit to that individual is almost non-existent. In order for democracy to keep the self-interest of politicians in check, voters need to have an understanding of what they're voting on and what policies are good for the whole of society. This would take a tremendous amount of time and effort. A single bill may be several hundred pages of technical legalese, and most elected officials vote on hundreds of bills in each term. For a citizen to be informed enough to know what policies are good for society versus good only for the politicians is incredibly costly, yet the individual vote of the citizen has almost no chance of changing the outcome or conferring any benefit. The rational response is to be ignorant of policies because the cost of being informed is so much greater than the chance of benefiting from being informed. A dedicated, informed voter has one vote that is canceled out by just one ignorant voter. So... This is, I heard, heard this before, I think actually from Jeff Tucker, who recommends that if you're going to go vote, just find someone who disagree with you and go to lunch instead, because your vote will be canceled out and uh, you'll have a much nicer time having a nice lunch. The result is what economists call rational ignorance. Voters are ignorant of policies and positions because to be otherwise is a burden with no reward. 
a bill to give a $100 million subsidy to Acme Co. is worth a great deal to the company. They would not be foolish to spend $99 million lobbying for its passage, as they would still come out a $1 million ahead. Voters, on the other hand, have no incentive to lobby against a bill because spread out across taxpayers, it might cost each just a few dollars, while active opposition, even just a letter to a congressperson, might take hours of time that could be spent something, doing something worth more than the few dollars. This is why democracy results in concentrated benefits and dispersed or diffused cost. So the with democracy, the again, we're not ever voting for specific issues. We're actually voting for an immensely huge, thousands of pages long bundle of things uh, by the, these politicians with our rational ignorance, meaning that it's too expensive for us to actually take any meaningful action as individuals since bigger organizations are going to get the concentrated benefits. Even if we forget those points, and I'm skipping another one of Isaac's argument in here, um, but we could also talk about rational irrationality. So back to the article, let's ignore all of that. Let's pretend the voters are not only informed and, but that by some magic, the will of the voters is clear as day and easily ascertainable through the democratic process. If we grant these two monumental assumptions, surely democracy will serve to protect the interests of the public at large from those of politicians and special interests, right? Unfortunately for democracy, its problems are even greater than rational ignorance and the impossibility of a clear will of the voters. The will of the voters may actually be for policies that are harmful to those voters themselves and the public at large. This is what Brian Kaplan has called rational irrationality. Voting is not the same as purchasing something in the market. To vote is to express a preference, while to purchase something is to demonstrate a preference. You understand? A vote is expressing a preference. To purchase something is to demonstrate a preference. Voting, like filling out an anonymous survey, is free. You can voice whatever preference you like without being held accountable for the result. So he's gonna, he uses a grocery store, but I'm going to use an ice cream parlor because this is my ice cream podcast. Imagine if a ice cream parlor sent a survey to nearby restaurants, uh, nearby residents, and asked them to vote for which flavors of ice cream they would like to see in the freezer. It's not hard to see what a disaster this would be for the patrons of the store. So, I mean, if in the grocery store metaphor people would often pick much healthier things than they would actually want to buy. So there would never be a frozen pizza or a Count Chocula ever in the store because people would choose to vote for kale and for uh, natural, organic, free-range chicken breast. And when, in fact, when they go to the store, they might buy the frozen pizza and the Count Chocula. Now, really, in a democracy, the store metaphor barely works because it's usually one thing or the other. In the ice cream metaphor, people would probably have to vote for, you know, it would be on on the left, they would vote for chocolate, and on the right, they would vote for vanilla, and then um, there'd be like these little crappy Green Party and Libertarian Party who would, you know, want rum raisin and, and strawberry. But everyone would just be given one choice. That's sort of how democracy works. So whatever plurality voted for either vanilla or chocolate, that would be all there was. And there couldn't be the 31 flavors that all individuals could choose. And in my opinion, that's the real criminality of democracy and laws like this, that we're always, we're not given the choice to do what we want to do as individuals, but we're handed something that the majority thought they wanted, even if they are using their rational irrationality.
and picking things that they don't really want. And really, voting itself is such like a lazy, low-cost thing to do. It's like, so if, if we were to think of it as some kind of meaningful collaboration that adds value to anybody, you're spending like, what, 15 minutes in a school cafeteria checking a box on a piece of paper every four years for one person out of four million federal government employees. You're not really collaborating at that point. You're not, uh, you know, using using your tremendous resources to help the poor and to get medicine to people. Not to mention that if even if you thought that that was the case, you're doing nothing to slow the military machine, the the, the prison industrial complex, the incarceration of casual drug users, the you know the propping up of the banking sector, et cetera, et cetera. The Monsanto, all, all the stuff that the lefty people hate just as much as the libertarians do. I also sometimes think voting is this queer idea where we can blame our neighbors for crap that perfect strangers in Washington, D.C. do. So every time every time when um, we see uh, President Trump and his, I'm sure he's going to wear a military uniform at some point, like sort of a Mussolini, uh, you know, Kim, Kim Jong-il type military uniform, and it'll allow half the population to uh, blame their neighbors for whatever stupid thing he says. And the same thing is going to happen when we have Miss Clinton in the audience, in the White House. The all or nothing, you know, the one way, the one way or the other way nature of democracy and government is especially frustrating. Again, that's like having the ice cream store where you can't have 31 flavors where people get what they want, or, or you can even have the, the not even go in the store but you only have the store that has the, ch the chocolate or the vanilla that the majority of people voted for. This mentality almost makes us always look for exceptions in human behavior and then make laws out of those exceptions versus the rule that would apply to everybody else. So recently we had that a horrible mass shooting in Orlando and we've every, every time this is almost like a, now that, that everyone's on the internet and on Facebook all day and there's four, 24 hour seven news channels. We see this cycle happen, you know, about once a year where there's some horrible shooting and then everyone screams that, you know, there should be gun control and that this type of gun should be banned. And very, very rarely does the story seem to be like, you know, this was one exception, crazy person that did something that was completely outside of the normal scope of what, you know, a, you know, a million out of a million and one people would never do. And yet the, the urge is to make a law that is either yes or no that applies to everybody. And this, this is the same thinking behind the, the basic income guarantee or the universal basic income is that because some people struggle with finding money is that we should make a program that applies to absolutely everybody. And this is the same thing for single-payer healthcare, where it's like there's some people are not doing a good job getting their own healthcare. And let's not even talk about why healthcare is so expensive to start with. We've already done that. But then let's make a program where everybody is put into this, and there's either it's just this one way or this other way. And there's no diversity. It's just let's have the government do this. And to call this these kind of things collaboration, uh, seems silly to me too, because again, it's not it's not people coming together, uh, working together for a mutual benefit. It's just these these ham-fisted, one-size-all approaches. And the same thing could be said for the war on drugs. If we want to pick on a uh, a program like that, 
you know, just says there's, you know, the small minority who screws up with drugs and hurts themselves or their, their families. So let's make it illegal for everyone. It just goes on and on. I almost wonder if there could be such thing as intelligent laws. And by that, I don't mean necessarily laws that are written intelligently by intelligent people, but would be contextual in nature. So if you look at your iPhone, your iPhone has a bunch of sensors on it, and it knows to that when you lift it up to the side of your head, that it shuts off the screen so you don't hang up or push buttons with your cheek. And it also knows that when you're holding it portrait and then you want to watch something landscape, it has a sensor in there that turns the screen around. So it ha- it's, it's contextual and intelligent in that way that it responds differently. So if we had laws like that, you would, you know, the, the law enforcer could go and see like, well, here's a guy on, on heroin who's about, you know, to uh, beat up his wife and his children you know, that could be illegal in that instance. And then here's a guy is sitting in his basement smoking pot playing Xbox. And that is not harming anybody. And he shouldn't have any any business even going near them. I had friends in college who were at a party. Um, not at a party. They were, they were at, um, they were home. The parents were away. And they had been drinking and smoking dope. And the only cassette player they had was in the car. So they weren't planning on going anywhere. They left. They just wanted to sit in the car, drink beer, and listen to some tunes. And of course, what happened is the police found them. And because the keys were in the ignition, the person sitting in the driver's seat got a DUI, even though they had no intention of driving the car. They were just going to sit in there with the car on and listen to music. And if there was intelligent or contextual laws, obviously he would not be picked up for a DUI in that situation. And I think that kind of thing happens all over the place. Now, I'm not saying that I'm advocating for these uh, subjective laws. I mean, how, how would they be implemented? You'd probably need to use robots or an AI because we know that the, the police and the law enforcers would be very random and would end up being very non-intelligent. But I still don't like it them just applied unintelligently to every situation, you know, dumbly without context. That part makes no sense to me. It seems like to me that if, if any collaboration or good outcomes comes from government and democracy at all, it, it almost seems like it's always at the very local level, like at your city level. The um, Nothing really important, maybe, maybe except for people who get social security or welfare, uh, really get to see anything from the federal level. And... You know, if you look at what you get locally, you know, you get your, they, you get your roads, you get your water infrastructure, you get your police, your pu- fire protection, you get your public library for as much as you like it or don't like it. You get schools, which, if you do like it, is a tremendous benefit because it's like uh, free babysitting. You get your parks, uh, you get public gardens, gardening, some public space uh, maintenance. You get, if you live up north, you get snow removal. And... You just get like all of this stuff and the, the, the ratio of money spent, uh, even, even if you go to the homeowners association, which are private, like in our neighborhood, we get a, you know, a a very nice swimming pool and a playground and tennis courts and a basketball court and all sorts of, uh, vegetation and gardening and even private roads for the most part. The, the level of money that you give these different organizations, or like at least I do, is weirdly and horribly uh, 
varied and disparate. So this year, last year, to the federal government, I gave them just uh, a few dollars under $50,000 in my federal taxes. And, and that's not including any taxes that I don't see, such as those that I pay in employment tax for my employees and things that are just sort of rolled in to various objects that you buy, such as luxury taxes. To, for that, I received almost nothing. And now I'm, I'm sure someone who, who is a fan of the government would say, well, you got all that safety, uh, which I, I find kind of, you know, laughable. You know, we got protection from, you know, the FDA saved you from taking a poisonous drug. Well, as we talked about early, earlier, these are all a lot of sort of fascistic uh, programs that limit our, our options, you know, so essentially the FDA has made it illegal for small companies to develop medicine. So is that a wash? Is that, you know, they cut me safe, but then they, they denied a bunch of opportunity. I don't know. In general though, for my 50 grand, I've got very, very little in, in benefits to call that a collaboration is, is not right. That's at best a sacrifice, if not a fleecing to the state. I think I paid around $8,000, and for that, maybe what did I get? I got some uh, steady police keeping the highway right. I got some, you know, some contribution to the local uh, welfare and uh, food stamp type stuff. I got some public roads on the on the big highways taken care of. To the town of where I live, Mount Pleasant, I paid $2,200, and in that. For that amount of money, I got all of those services I just listed, the, the, the school, the fire, the police, the parks, and uh, on and on and on, garbage collection services, all these things that are actually quite useful, especially things like the roads and you know having my garbage picked up and having my wastewater taken care of, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And in Mount Pleasant, which has a quarter of the taxes I paid when I lived up north in Amesbury, we also get all, all these other great things, like we have um, these county parks that have these enormous playgrounds, and they have a whole uh, water slide, like water park, with like um, with current rivers and those giant water slides that are four stories tall, and fountains, and we get these athletic facilities that have ten, you know, four football fields, you know, sixteen t-ball what do you call it like softball baseball fields uh, a swimming pool indoor you know racket courts it's just amazing for this small parcel of money that's paid what we get locally versus what we get federally and i would just love it if i could take that that if i if i were able to give that fifty thousand dollar check that i give to the feds and give it to even just the local guys um we would probably have like butlers in our home as part of the benefit the poor people would probably be chauffeured around in rolls rices you know if you if you think about what we get for the 2200 the 50,000 you know they, they would not only just pick up the garbage they would come into your house and clean it for you I mean that's the kind of level of benefit that I that I would see if it was man, you know managed locally and the local government I'm not a big fan of local government either either uh, I, I, I would just assume, you know, pay, pay for these services. But the reason why I think they're so much better is because the mayor always has the threat that the people might actually show up during his lunch break and chew him out or punch him in the neck. The president and the congressman, of course, all live, are strangers that live a thousand miles away and are able to just take the money 
right from your paycheck. So they have they have no no reason to be this accountable. And really, all of these things like picking up your garbage and patrolling the streets and running a park are probably too valuable to put in you know the federal government's hand because they would just cock it up. It would be you know instead of the war of drugs, they would have the you know the war on recreation, you know, or the the war on garbage. And it would just be a total disaster. Ice cream! What? Ice cream! Uh, one big dig that uh, the the um, the people who appreciate the state like to dig on libertarians is they like to bring up the fact that we use the roads and the post office. And if a burglar was in our house, that we would call the, the state-run police. And that when we retire, we take the free free medical insurance and the free Social Security checks etc etc and they even bring up famous examples uh, Ayn Rand for example used the state medical pension when she got sick when she was old after a lifetime of smoking there's a congressman I forget his name I think it's Paul Ryan who was criticized because he he was raised using uh, one of the the poor people benefits that that they got or he got to attend school or something like that anyways this is perfectly normal, normal behavior. I don't, I don't really see it as a big criticism. If we were to pretend that, let's say the government spent all of your money, all, all of my $50,000 on free ice cream and said, here it is, I could still think that was a totally terrible, destructive, useless use of those resources. I could still be upset that it was taken by force and that I had no choice, that I had to spend at least, what would that be? more than you know 10 to 15 weeks out of the year of my life of my work job to actually fund that and uh and still gladly take my share of the ice cream uh it's recuperation at that point it's the state of nature if a you know if you're living on a plantation and the slave master gives you a bed and a meal you don't say all of a sudden that you're collaborating with your slave master but you still consume the meal you still sleep in the bed that's the constraint that we live under. Ice cream! What? Ice cream! I used another ice cream analogy with my, my long talks with Chris about understanding libertarianism versus other political philosophies or political parties or political designations. And it almost doesn't make sense, you know, to someone who, who's, not, who's thinking government as a constant and a given and even worse yet, as being moral and a form of collaboration or a form of social intelligence or, of, you know, representing people working together, that libertarianism can't make sense because they somehow reject every part of, of the government. You know, there's nothing that they do right. So even if we, and I don't know how you can even separate this in my mind, you know, when we look at the, its its violent history, you know, the 260 million you killed in democide, you know, in the last hundred years. That's uh, democide is when governments kill people, even outside of warfare. And look at it, you you know, maybe you can separate the various things that it does as being some of them being moral and good and some of them being evil. But since they're all part of the same organization, it's kind of hard to, to separate uh, the immorality from the, the, the moral. Uh, it would be like having a neighbor who routinely beats and you know rapes his family on Tuesdays and Wednesdays and Saturdays, but then on the other days he 
gives them, you know, food and of course ice cream, since this is the ice cream podcast. And then say like, well, you know, Hank is a, is a swell guy, you know, he's just got to stop that, you know, raping and the, the beating on the three days of the week. But even if you are able to, to separate those out and pretend that this and ignore, which, which I think a lot of people who are fans of the state like to do. Um, I don't, I don't think any, any persuasion I said this last week, um, really like the state of the government. They just want a different, but it's sort of like, you know, we look at the, the Democrats and they have, you know, 16 issues, 16 flavors of ice cream that they like. And the Republicans on their side have 16 flavors of ice cream that they like. And a lot of them overlap. And how can the libertarian come in and not like any of them? How is that possible when you're given the 31 flavors of ice cream? How can you, from everything from my healthcare ice cream to, I'm stretching this now, you know, healthcare to military protection to FDA protection to financial regulation to, uh, to old, old, old age pensions. How, how can you not like any of them? Well, the thing is, is that the libertarian doesn't want ice cream that day. He's looking for something completely different. And once you boil it down to a moral stance on not wanting the use of force, then every issue becomes one to be rejected. In the same sense, I think that to call social interaction Collaboration is, I, I absolutely think, to, for it to be moral collaboration, that it has to be voluntary. The neat thing is, is that we we went through those the market examples of how tremendous collaboration happens and how it happens all around us in the marketplace. But there's all sorts of non-government collaborations that happen in our lives, such as our family and our marriage, our friendships, our neighbors, going to a party having us having sport teams play each other having sport teams exist within a league having uh fans go and cheer the sport teams are all you know voluntary huge collaborative events uh same as going to a movie or consuming anything going to a a large concert event or going to a state you know to i hate to say a state fair but i'm not even sure those are run by the state but you know what i mean um going to a great restaurant or even a crappy restaurant or grocery store are wonderful ways to collaborate with people around you. Having employees and working for customers and working for your employer are all voluntary situations. Working with vendors. Going shopping. Going shopping is a wonderful way to build mutual outcomes with other people. So in markets in general, um, there's this sort of myth that markets are only beast of competition and in reality there's very little competition in everybody's daily lives you very rarely complete with the the other employees you don't compete with your neighbors you don't compete with your grocery store when you shop there you don't compete um when you buy something you don't really compete with your cable company the idea of competition happens just specifically uh, amongst people in business categories Uh, keeping each other in check. But in daily life, the world, the marketplace, the, the state of commerce is not a beast of competition, but one mostly of collaboration, working together and people mutually working together for a mutual benefit. And not only just a mutual benefit, it's not like one outcome that treats them that, that, that they both want. 
it's actually two outcomes that are more valuable than when they started. And I've, we've used this example in just about every single episode of this podcast, but when you have an economic transaction, both sides become richer because both sides get something that they wanted more than they had when they started off with. So just again, just to beat this in, you know, if Subway, the sandwich maker has a sandwich and you have $5, the sandwich maker wants the $5 more than he wants the sandwich and you want the sandwich more than you want the $5, you trade and both people are richer. So that's collaboration. That's nothing to do with competition whatsoever. And, you know, we don't really compete with each other for the most part for food or shelter or all the stuff that we buy everybody gets it it's not zero sum like the government or democracy it's win-win there's this great meme um, going around the internet which has a picture of stalin and it says dark humor is like food not everybody gets it and i thought that was hysterical but again the, the of course the joke is is that you know you put something as you know as clumsy as zero sum uh, as r- irrational rationality, I forget what that what I was from our you know Isaac's article, and all of a sudden people are not getting food. It's the opposite of a of a beneficial outcome. It's the opposite of collaboration. Ice cream. What? Ice cream. I did want to do a quick book report on this gift that my friend Chris got me, which is Edward O. Wilson, The Meaning of Human Existence. In the book, he goes through a lot of the the, the biology of how humans came into existence and he tries to he makes a case that the 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 meaning of human existence is sort of split between the scientists who are doing like evolutionary biology or just regular biology and then there's the humanities such as the philosophy uh, part of knowledge and they haven't really come together he goes into a detail about other social species who have social intelligence and and claims that humans greatest attribute has been social intelligence in a way that not necessarily for group selection but our ability to collaborate and to cooperate and to work together is a great boon for why we've succeeded and he goes into other species which he limits very much to ants termites bees and a few various African role, uh, mole rats to say that these are the only species that have to exhibit social intelligence. But with these species, they never necessarily achieve a moral end. They do some, some bad things. And they're not necessarily conscious as individuals, but perhaps they do have some sort of consciousness as a society. Now, I, um, some of the interpretation I read into what I thought Chris was thinking that especially with the email that I read at the beginning, was that this was a desirable mode of living, that there's some, as you said, an in-between where there has to be social intelligence and collaboration in order for human flourishing. And I, I, I agree with that point. I just don't think that the government is the representation of that uh, collaboration and is not necessarily necessary for human flourishing. And if we, we take the history, this, I mean, this is outside the book. As we've said, we've seen it do some very terrible things that are anti-human flourishing. Uh, Edward O. Wilson's book goes on to talk about how humans have chosen sight and, and sound to be the primary way that we interpret the world. And if you think about how human bodies are, 
our noses, since we stand upright, our noses are very far away from the ground. And most other animals, whether it be a beagle or an ant, are using pheromones and their sense of smell and these other senses that we're completely blind to and allows them to collaborate in ways that we can't necessarily. But of course, our system has proven to be you know, vastly superior and dominant. Uh, he then, he goes on to talk about other things. He, he describes what intelligent life on other planets might look like. And he thinks they're going to be very similar to humans. Like for example, they will most likely stand upright. They will have some kind of appendage that are like fingers. They will, um, they will use, they will prefer visual and audio information to pheromone information. They won't live underwater. So even if we were to consider dolphins intelligent, dolphins can never be humans because one, they don't have hands to make tools and manipulate things. They also don't, they can't use fire. So part of uh, a big part of human development and flourishing is that we're able to use external sources of power and energy, uh, mostly as it is in fire, whether you want to think about uh, fire, like the cook, the, the campfire that cavemen used to use to cook their food all the way up to the combustion engine that we have now, or even a nuclear power plant that is essentially a big fire maker to heat water to spin a turbine, et cetera, et cetera. And so any kind of flourishing intelligent life would require that. He also notes that in the four, four billion year history of, of the, the earth, that, um, there was only only one species out of, out of that entire time, out of millions or even billions of species ever developed into the intelligent state that we did. And so if you were to look to outer space to find, you know, even within the first 50 light years or 200 light years, there still might be, I forget, I, don't, I, I can't remember, I'm just making stuff up now. You know, maybe there's 50,000 planets that would be in the Goldilocks state of being just right as far as having water and the right, you know, not too hot, not too cold to support life. But looking at the rare instance of how intelligent life sprung on Earth, it would almost be statistically impossible for any of those 50,000 or whatever worlds to have an intelligent species going on at this current time, which I thought was pretty interesting. Uh, of course, once once you expand your outreach to be further and further to include, you know, millions or billions of perfect worlds or trillions or quadrillions, whatever, then the, the chances of another intelligent species are almost assured. Uh, he then, he goes a little bit into uh, free will and, you know, morality and some philosophy through this table of content. It's been about two months since I've read it. Anyway, I really enjoyed it. It's, it's, it's a sip of a book uh, at under 200 pages. Uh, it's very easy to read, and it was information that was completely outside of the stuff that I usually read on my own. So I was really happy to get this book and really enjoyed it. It didn't go into anything uh, political or I'm not even sure the government's mentioned once. So it wasn't this 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 gift of from Chris wasn't a, a direct refutation, I don't think, to um, anything we, we talked about in particular or that we've been talking about for the last 20 years. So anyway, recommended. Um, I'm sure it's cheap. Get it on Amazon. It was uh, just a fine read if you want to do something different that's, you know, then if, if you're not usually reading about evolutionary biology. Uh, he doesn't, I don't think he really gets to a satisfactory answer to the meaning of human existence uh, in any way that, that would be 
philosophically useful to anybody or that would help us direct our behavior. And maybe I just didn't get it, but still good fun. Thanks, Chris. Ice cream! What? Ice cream! Okay, so that's it for today for the most part. Again, just to recap, what I wanted to do was, one, is erase the notion that that libertarian or anarchy-type philosophy or ideas are anti-collaboration, that they are nature, they're, they're creatures of competition and predation. The idea of anarchy is not being sharks and bears who are alone feeding on others, but instead wildly collaborative and cooperative situations, going from everything to how we manage who we love and who we work with to the power of markets and commerce and the invention of just about everything that we have in our lives that cannot be done alone. Even as something as simple as a toaster, a pencil, and yes, even ice cream. And then again, to recap that, that government and democracy is a system that is to be where is, is the failure of collaboration. It's zero sum. It's make and take in the form of taxes and rules, it's essentially a failure to have collaboration happen. And it doesn't have to be that way. I guess if we were living uh, without it, which we haven't ever, and then all of a sudden we realized that we were unable to voluntarily collaborate to do something, then maybe, 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 maybe you got a case there. Uh, but I, I don't think he would still call it collaboration at that point. It would still be authority, you know, authority, obedience, compliance, violence. So that's it. Now, I'm going to leave you with a 10-minute video that was produced by Graham Wright based on a talk by Larkin Rose. I really like Larkin Rose's stuff. And the situation is an alien comes to Earth, and he meets a U.S. citizen who insists on taking him to his leader. And I actually first heard this reposted on the School Sucks Project and thought it was great. And I was doing research for this this podcast. I was actually trying to find a video, a kid's video, that explained government as collaboration or cooperation. Then I even expanded my search after finding nothing there to you know, find any kind of third-party video that would conflate collaboration and cooperation with government, and it just didn't exist, which I found really surprising because I thought a lot of people would have this this kind of this kind of mindset. And even a lot of the children's videos about government were more critical than I could have ever imagined them to be, even the ones that were produced like by PBS, which is funded by the government. It was it was kind of surprising how skeptical they were. Anyway, this is a really fun video. It doesn't completely have a lot to do with our topic, but I when I was doing the research, I came across it again, watched it, and just found it immensely enjoyable. And then after that, after you listen to that, if you want, because there's no more of me talking after this, uh, I'm going to end with the Hudson Debacle song, Ice Cream, which features my friend Chris playing the bass guitar, me on drums, me singing, and then our friends Javi and Dave. So again, thanks for listening. Hopefully this does as well as the last one. And just know that the schedule for new releases for 500years.org podcast might slow down a bit. I sold a bunch of work that I actually have to do myself. So my work week is going to go expand up to a four-hour 
essentially 16 to 20 hour work week for the next couple weeks until I get through writing all of these papers. Not And, <laughs> and I have to confess, uh, two of them are in the military space. So here's large-scale hypocrite coming at you with his, uh, his government money. It's actually not paid by the government. It's by a private corporation, but they get their money from the government and for helping kill people. So I got that going for me. Anyways, here we go. Thanks so much. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Hey, an alien. Yes, I've traveled across space to check on the progress of your species. Cool. Shall I take you to our leader? Your what? Our leader, the guy in charge. The guy in charge of what? Well, in charge of everything. You have one guy in charge of everything? No, no, he's in charge of government. What is government? Well, government makes the rules for us. It tells us what we can do and what we can't do. So is government really smart? They come up with wise rules for you to follow? Well, mostly. But some of its rules are really stupid. Do you disregard those rules? No, we have to follow the rules, even if they are stupid or we disagree with them. Government punishes anyone who disobeys the rules. So you are slaves to government? No, 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 it's not like that at all. Government works for us, the people. It serves us. We're the boss. It tells you what to do, and it punishes you with violence if you disobey it, and yet you're its boss? Yeah. But there are some things government does that you don't like. Well, yeah, not everything government does is popular, like spending on wars, for example. What is a war? It's when government basically spends the people's money on weapons and soldiers and then sends them over to the other side of the world to kill a bunch of people over there and destroy their country. I don't like it that government does this. Well, I can see why you might not like that. Have you humans reached the stage where you generally consider stealing, enslaving and killing each other to be bad things? Oh yeah, we know that. Don't steal, don't attack, don't assault. But you give money to government and they use it to kill people. Well, yeah. But government does good things with tax money as well. Why don't you stop paying for the things you don't like and only pay for the good things it does? No, we can't do that. You can't just decide to stop paying taxes because the rules say that everyone has to pay taxes. But the rules come from government though, don't they? Yeah. So government made a rule which says that everyone has to pay them money. So everyone pays taxes because if they didn't, government would punish them using violence? Well, yes, but most people don't mind paying taxes. Most people feel obligated to pay taxes and obey government laws because it's for the good of society. Society needs government and that means we all have to pay taxes.
So just to make sure I've got this straight, government makes the rules and you feel obligated to follow the rules, even the ones you don't like, and it tells you what to do and threatens to punish you if you don't do what it says, and it uses some of the money that it's taken from you using threats of violence to pay for things you don't like and actually think are immoral, like mass murder. Yeah, but we can ask it to please tell us to do smart things, and please don't take our money and use it to kill people. We're allowed to ask them to tell us to do what we want them to tell us to do. Are you guys just scared of this thing? Is government some huge monster that can just squish you at any moment if you disobey? No, government isn't a monster. Well, what is it then? Could you draw me a picture of it? Government isn't really the sort of thing you can draw a picture of. Maybe you could take me to it. Where is government? You mean the building? Government is a building. No, but the politicians who make up the government have buildings they work from. So government is a group of these politicians? Yeah. Okay, so what species are these politicians? Well, they're... human. Like you? Yeah. So politicians are humans, and they're government. You're a human, but you're not government. No. So it's the politicians, they're the ones that boss the rest of you around, and make you do things you don't want to do, and take your money using threats of violence. But even though you're all humans, you're not allowed to boss them around and take their money? No, they'd put us in a cage if we did that. But look, it's not like the politicians can just do whatever they want. Like, a politician can't just come up to me on the street and make me give him money. They can't do that. Politicians can only do things like that in their job, when they're working for government. Oh, so politicians aren't government, they just work for government? Yeah. Okay, so government isn't a monster, and it isn't a building, and it's not politicians, it's something else. And it employs politicians, who are just regular humans, who get to order everyone else around and take their money. How does a regular human become a politician? Well, that's the great thing about our government. It's a democracy, and that means that the people actually have the power, because we get to decide who among us get to be the politicians. We get to vote. And if a politician starts doing things we don't like, we can just replace him with someone else at the next election. So the people that get chosen to be politicians only get to boss people around and take their money for a short time, and then they go back to being regular humans? Exactly. That sounds like a powerful position to be in. But if you get to choose who does that, I assume that politicians are always the wisest, most honest, caring and respected people among you. Well, no, not really. I wouldn't say politicians are known for being honest, or wise, or caring. And they're certainly not the most respected people among us. Come to think of it, most politicians are lying, power-hungry crooks. The ones you chose? 
Yeah, they're always doing things we don't like. They use taxpayers' money to enrich themselves and their friends, and they never keep their promises to voters. They've been caught stealing and lying and taking bribes, and they mostly do what the big corporations want. Yeah, they're always doing stuff like that. They're completely corrupt. They're a bunch of lying crooks. But you said that most humans know that stealing and beating each other up and killing are wrong. And you said that you have the power because you can change who's in charge. So why don't you just replace the lying, thieving, murderous, crooked politicians with some regular people? Well, we don't try to elect lying crooks. It just always turns out that way. But we have to have a government because some humans are nasty and might kill or enslave or steal. Civilization just couldn't survive without government. Let me get this straight. Because you're worried about the small number of nasty people that are willing to kill and slave and steal, you think it's necessary for your survival to have a system where some humans among you, for a short while, get to call themselves the government, and they get to order everyone else around like slaves, and if they want, commit mass murder overseas, using money they stole, using threats of violence. Politicians get to kill, enslave and steal, because if they didn't, someone else might? And you try to elect good, honest people to be politicians, but what happens every time is that the people you elect turn out to be corrupt, evil, lying crooks. That's your system. Yeah, that's pretty much government. She didn't seem so angry To tipsy tipsy Mary She fell down Swinted her hands on a driftwood With laughter, love and fear Fear of time she's lost Slipping gently through her fingers Washing clear in the ocean Love is only joy with focus Oh!